Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right, welcome aboard. We're back with Tone Duff Sessions. I'm here with two amazingly gifted writers and rockers. Uh, kind of an unusual combination to have a, a doubleheader like this. But we have uh, Mark Ferrari and Frank Meyer. And they both have uh, quite a list of accomplishments and bands they've played in and stuff they've worked on. And I'm sure that will all unfold as we go through this. And they're also both uh, authors of books about uh, rock and roll in different aspects. And they've both written books, also from different aspects, about children or how to raise children. Uh, topic that I personally am very ungifted on, <laughs> so I'm going to let them take the, the main reins of that stuff. But, but we're going to get into it all right now. Uh, I think I would like to, since you know people are kind of used to hearing about music on this, sort of start on the music end of things. Mark, you wrote Rockstar 101, which is a... Unusual book in that it's pretty much a step-by-step, -step, all the pitfalls you can encounter, how to be a rock star and the kind of things you need to know that most people really don't know just from being, you know, musicians and learning how to play an instrument or sing or whatever it is. Well, Frank Zappa put it succinctly where he said there is more business than music in the music business. Yep. And um, come to find out there had not been a book written by an actual recording artist that dealt with the business end of things. Right. Uh, you know, uh, bands in general are business arrangements, whether you like them or not. There's uh, obviously songwriting splits that, that come into play and how to divvy up all sorts of different revenues, uh, such as merchandising, tour monies, album album royalties that kind of thing so you know be, being in a band certainly is being in a business and there have been some great books written by attorneys and by agents and um what have you but there have been none written by an actual recording artist that actually you know got into a band got signed went on the road you know had to sign all these deals himself um, and so I, I wrote it from, from that perspective, uh, easy to read, you know, easy to read language, uh, really uh, designed to help the up and coming, the younger artist, um, you know, navigate through the business end of things in, in band situations. And, and quickly uh, backtrack <coughs> with us the bands you were in. Uh, that, for, uh, that, yeah, I was. With this I started in 1962 when I joined the Beatles, and then when they kicked Zeppelin, when they kicked Page out of Zeppelin, I know. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles in 1984, and maybe our our listeners should know that uh, Bruce uh, was actually one of the first people that I actually met. Uh, when I moved here, I had gotten a phone number, and so literally I was in town, Los Angeles, less less than a week when I was trudging up to the new image offices at the 9000 building, and I met the great Bruce Duff there. Not uh, quite as good of a story uh, as the girl at the rainbow in yeah, the book, but you know. Some, there's some interesting road stories, but uh, so anyways, uh, moved here in 84, and I got involved with uh, Ron Keel, who... Uh, had already made a name for himself in Los Angeles as the uh, front man of Steeler. Uh, Steeler, uh, although never got a major label deal, they were headlining 
you know, venues, huge venues. Well, and let's not forget that Steeler featured a young Yngwie Malmsteen. That's, cor- that's correct. And uh, that's... I would say, I think, was it Shrapnel did that record? Shrap- yeah. Shrapnel, that, 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 that Rick Fox me, was in the band to, too. Rick Fox, allow right. me to jump in. And, and what was the drummer's name? Mark. Uh, Mark uh, Edwards. Right, right. Yeah. Who also did a record after that. But uh, but Steeler was definitely a, a, a big metal band, certainly on an indie level in that like, like if you were paying attention to metal, like everyone kind of heard of Steeler at this one point because A, they had this hot shot lead guitar player who everyone was saying like was the next Richie Blackmore or the next Eddie or whatever. Um, and, and and Ron had just kind of a, a rep around, you know, he was yeah. sort of like the, the, him and Piercy were sort of like the cool front men around town, so I think Keel came out with a little bit of a buzz because you, you had yeah, Ron, well, you know. Exactly, it's not like we, we started from scratch, but we were a new entity and, sure. uh, you know, we had, you know, we, we paid our dues in the clubs and uh, grinding it out on the clubs and auditions and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, yeah, the first Keel EP, and the, I, I, allow me to jump in yeah. again and jump in. Well, no, but there's the, the first EP. There was an EP, the one with the the, the girl. Lay, that's lay down the law. It's actually right. an LP. Okay, yeah, uh, but it's a, it, it, it's a it, yeah. I guess it's it on is an shrapnel LP. Right, right. Yeah. That was an indie yeah. one. The so you indie, did have an indie record before you got the big deal. Yeah, yeah that's that an indie correct. one. I guess EP. Well, but I'm thinking in, the indie record that came out before Right to Rock. Yeah also came out with like a big buzz of like there was this wave of LA metal and there was like the first Rat EP and the first Keel album right and you know Hellion and Bitch and a few other Armored Saint this wave of like malice this new metal coming out of LA and uh, me being a, a, a kid that was into all that stuff I can tell you like I heard about Keel right when you guys came out. I bought that first indie record. <laughs> I I remember when the the Right to Rock video came on, you know, Night Flight on MTV, and this was back in the days when like there were these sort of concept videos with dialogue and scenes sure. and stuff. And yeah. uh, I actually put that video on today. Uh, and I also, by the way, point out that my band, The Streetwalking Cheetahs, stole the title Right to Rock for one of our songs we put on one of our records uh. because I was always a Keel fan and we wrote this song that said rock in it like 52 times or something. And, and we're, we're like, but what if we can't just call the song Rock, Rock, Right? And I was like, no, we have to call it Right to Rock. So we have a song called Right Drive. Uh, Anyways, I go ahead. Continue. I, well, <laughs> well, I'm not worthy. <laughs> no, I'm not worthy of you, man. I'm a big fan. Oh, that, that, that's good to know. Yeah, Kiel definitely was, you know, part of... We were actually part of the second wave of uh, the L.A. Uh, heavy metal scene because I... Uh, I, I moved here from Boston. In 1983, I had gotten the Steeler record. I had gotten the first Dawkins e- right. uh, release, the first Rat release, Motley Crue. So all those bands were 82, 83. So that sort of what you call maybe that's the first wave. That was the, that definitely the first wave. Uh, that was m- part, partly my decision to move out here to Los Angeles because I figured if I was going to be starving, I might as well be starving where a it was warmer. B, where all this great music was coming from. C, where the girls were hotter. So was there a metal scene in Boston? Uh, was it no. all sort of left, you know, like no, DMZ it, and the Rat and all that, it, like sort of punk rock it, it, Ramones leftover yeah, kind of it, stuff? It was it was a different scene. You know, um, there was really not much of a hard rock scene in Boston uh, at yeah. the time. It, it had a vibrant music scene. It just wasn't hard rock. New wave of yeah. punk rock and stuff. So out to Los Angeles, I moved in January of 84. I met Ron, uh, I think, in March of 84. Uh, first Keel gig, April of 84. And by August, we had recorded both Lay Down the Law 
first for Varney, and then we got signed to Gold Mountain uh, in July of 84 and started The Right to Rock with Gene Simmons producing in August oh, of 84. Oh, right, I forgot Gene Simmons Gene, produced yeah. I actually did not know that. Yes, yeah. he produced The Right to Rock and the, and the album that came after that. So actually... The Final Frontier? Boy, you are good. Yeah, you are good. I got it on vinyl. I bought, well, it, wait a minute, I bought it at Music so, Plus. Was it shortly after that that Gene actually started his own label? Uh, that was a little later. Okay. Uh, yeah, House of Lords. That was during the Jufria years. Yes, yeah, House right. of Lords. Yeah, House, oh, yeah, House of Lords. Yeah, that's right. Silent Rage was up. Silent Rage. That's right. Silent, I remember. Who are still yeah. around? I think Silent Rage, like, still gig in Orange uh, County, yeah. and you know, I don't know if they're still shirtless or whatever, but <laughs> they but, certainly uh, were back then. <laughs> yeah, I kind of went from zero to sixty pretty quickly. You know, I stopped to think about it. You know, I uh, moved here in January of '84, and you know, didn't meet Ron until two. You know. He figured between March of 84 and August of 84, five months, we had he'd done two records and, you know, gotten signed and, you know, off, off we were going. I think if you move uh, to Hollywood and meet Bruce Stuff and Ron Keel in a short <laughs> period of time, like, life is going to get it, crazy hectic for you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, nitrogen <laughs> and glycerin. So. One thing I wanted to ask, when I, when I read your book, you know, having been at this for so long, oh, I know that, and oh, yes, sure, of course, that's that's obvious. One thing that was in there that I hadn't really considered that you made a huge emphasis about, and I had to think about it and realized I'd never been involved in anything like this, is you talk about bands, like, pretty early on, if, if you have it together, you work out an inter-band agreement. In other words, everybody in the band signs something for to protect each other and themselves. Mm. Like, the band breaks up, this guy quits, you know, whatever happens, how are you protected? What happens to all the stuff that you've written, own, gear that you might have gotten uh, with an endorsement, etc. Oh. Now, did you actually have one of these with your bands at the time, or is this just sort of a hindsight yeah. thing? I wish we, I'd had no, it done we, that. No, we had a partnership agreement. For with Keel. With Keel, and it spelt out our obligations to each other. You know how uh, you know members wow. could, could could be. I never even you thought know, of that. I never thought. Yeah. I'd never done that. Uh, our obligations to each that, other. Well, that had to have been Ron's idea, because he probably came from Steeler and like maybe got ripped off or subburnt or something. Or am I wrong? That feels like it has to have been from the Ron, one guy that you know, already had a deal. Was like, fuck this. Yeah, you know, Ron. You know, the, the name of the band was Keel. You know, he was the mouthpiece. He was the front guy. He was. Uh, but you guys were writing, co-writing songs. We were you were a guitar yeah. player, so you were that's true. coming up with songs. That's, that's would, true. Would you got? If the, forgive me if this is too personal, but yeah. like, were you splitting publishing? We, or, you know, look, there, there, there's all sorts of ways that people can decide how to split their publishing. Sure. You know, so, some bands split it four yeah, ways. Yeah, like Van, make, Van, right. Van Halen, you know, they split everything four well, ways. Or you go song by song, depending on who. But, yeah. I mean, if you came up with a riff, yeah. if you and Ron wrote a song, yeah. would you get credit, or did yeah, it all so go no, into Ron and no, he was breaking no, no, no. people? No, no, no. Ron was fair about that. Yeah, and, so, I mean, uh, that's where the money is more than a lot I mean, of other things. You know, but but in, in, in real life, we took our publishing advance, and it all kind of went into the band Kitty. Right, right. You know, right. we were all drawing a little bit per week, so we didn't have, you know, we weren't, you know, homeless, and, you know, uh, we we had a um, full-time road guy that was with us, and, you know, we had other other things, you know, for clothes and that kind of stuff, and independent publicists and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, our publishing money went into funding the whole band. Is that, was yeah. Bruce one of your independent, was you a publicist? Uh, no, I didn't no, work for no, them yeah. as a publicist. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, you know, 
over overall, um, at the end of the day, I think we, we all made the same amount of money as as each other, which was not very much. Right, you right, know, right. You know. But was it yeah. helpful to have had that agreement yeah, later well, down the road? Abs absolutely. And I, I think what, what it does is, is it just... It's like a prenup, you know. Sure. It's it's, it's like yeah, it's like a band prenup, you know. It's like, look, if this doesn't work out, and I hope that I'm in this band for 40 years with you, but if it doesn't work out, you know, this is what you know. While we still have respect for each other and treat each other civilly, this is this is what you know we've agreed to do. Well, I mean, it's and it's interesting that you compare it to a prenup because in both situations you're with people that oh, I will never be burned by this wonderful person and this is going to be great forever and I don't need this document when in reality you very well might. Yeah. So, you know, my goal in writing the book, you know, again, was to share the knowledge that I, I had gained, you know, doing what I did and going through the trenches and everything. And sure. as I say in the book, you know, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like getting into a, tra a bear trap or any kind of trap where it's easy to get in, but it's hard to get out. So uh, you just want to go in there with as much knowledge. You know, I'm not saying, you know, don't form a band or, you know, don't be in a band with this guy. Just, just go in knowing that, hey, this is this is what it's like in real life. It's a relationship that has, you know, a musical component to it and it has a personal and business relationship yep. component to it, too. So you wrote this thing in, uh, or it came out in 2002, yeah. and in the book there's like, uh, you know, <laughs> allusions to like, well nowadays there's, you know, you, you wrote it and mentioned, yeah. you know, stuff like, uh, you know, Napster and all these kind of things <laughs> starting to come up and what you can do on a computer, but it was still sort of it was, new stuff then. Yeah. Would, do you think this book uh, deserves and needs like kind of a, you know, it's certainly a rewrite or a, a postscript or it something? It absolutely should have a second an edition that updates certain things for, since 2002. As a matter of fact, it, when I when I wrote the, the original manuscript in 2001, I mean a lot of people didn't even have you know cell phones. So like one of the tips that I, I put in there, like when, when you're on the road, you know back back in our day, you know pre cell phone, pre you know pre computer, pre you know almost pre everything, you know uh, we used to uh, you know make our phone calls in the production office because nobody had yeah you know, sure. it's, or you know make sure you carry change with you in case you're out at a bar and you get stiff and you you don't you know you don't know where you are that's happened to me you know like what and we'd always try to make friends with especially overseas with whoever's the greeting us when we first come in like really be real nice and oh hey do you have a do you have a phone in the you know anything <laughs> where you don't have to like put it on your dime yeah so Amazing. i mean this book should be updated uh but there have been you know since this book has been released there's been a lot of really uh, well-written, uh, more encompassing books uh, besides this one that I I would even recommend people buy over this. You know, ah. but all right, there you have it. So, uh, having said that, of course, we know about all the technology that's happened since then. As far as all the deal making and all that kind of stuff, do you think it's more or less still in the same well, place? I think some of the underlying. Um, the, the, the underlying things are still similar. You still, you know, you may be offered a record contract and there's, there's this that you need to look out for. There's this you need to look out for. You still may be offered a publishing deal and there's this to look out for. There's that to look out for. And there's still, you know, bands today still have to develop their team, you know, whether you know, there's a manager, there's a booking agent, there's a publicist, there's a, a business manager. You know, we, we had all that. And, and you know th that stuff still goes on. Sure. Um, you know what is uh, what has changed obviously is the way that people consume music now. 
you know, obviously uh, in 2001, you know, we didn't have streaming back then. You know, we didn't have, uh, uh, I think we, we might have had iTunes in 2001. I can't recall if that's kind of when the whole iTunes thing started. But uh, there's certainly, um, that's been the big uh, Teutonic shift, I think, is the way that consumers in general uh, ingest music. These days, there's less buying and more renting going on, mm -hmm. right? People are streaming music, and they don't own it. They're, they're, they're like renting it, you know? Um, and that's a weird thing because they want to pay you like it's a radio royalty, uh, it's, but it's a radio royalty where you can change the station to the song you want to hear whenever you feel like it. Yeah. So it's a really weird gray area. No one seems to want to like, is too concerned about making it fair for the, the songwriters themselves. I also interspersed the book with, you know, some silly road stories and mm. stuff that, you know, happens to musicians on a semi-daily basis out on the road. So it, I, I still think it's an interesting read, uh, even though some of the the uh, information in it should be updated to reflect where we are here in 2017. Yeah, you know, I, I want to get into, like, a lot of times people that listen to this thing are other authors and stuff, and they want to know how that... They know how to write. They're a little bit more concerned with, like, how some of this business gets done. I want to talk to both of you guys about this stuff. Uh, but in 2002, when you got this book going... Uh, it seems like this publisher is kind of a publisher of how-to books. And you're exactly how right. How did you sort of find yeah. them and get that together? Um, so I wrote I wrote the original manuscript, um, knowing that I you know that that I had to shop it. You know, it's kind of like shopping for a record deal, right? You know, so you, you wrote it, the whole thing. I wrote the man. I I went up to Big Bear uh, the summer of 2001. I rented a house up there for a month, and I wore I wrote every day. Um, and it was a, it was really great for me to go up there and kind of, you know, be sure. away from the phones and be be away from uh, the smog and be away from the city and just to, you know and to just really concentrate on writing. It was it was the the best thing for me to do. Uh, so I took the summer to write it, and then um, I did a lot of research as to who were the best. Uh, 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 who the best publishing houses to submit the manuscript to? You know, obviously there were other music industry books that came out before mine. And I submitted the manuscript to probably 40 or 50 uh, publishers. That many? Yeah, I think, I think so. And I got about 49 no's and I got one yes. Wow. All, all it takes is the one yes. So, of course. You know, I, I got a small advance and I got some pretty, you know, what I, I thought were pretty decent uh, uh, deal points, uh, deal terms on it. I didn't write the book, you know, uh, uh, as a source of income. I had other income at the time. I, I did it because I, I wanted to get it off my chest and, you know. I think most of us that yeah. write books are not like, oh, become an author, right. you know, buy a house uh, and I'll be sitting on the lake. It's going to be great. I'll be Stephen King. <laughs> I, I don't think too many people are that delusional. Yeah. For, it's, it's the same... I, it's probably the same kind of pyramid as it is in the music business. You know, you've got the the guys at the top, the pinnacles that are the superstars, and yeah, they're making the big bucks. And then, you know, you've got for every one of those, there's uh, thousands, if not tens, or hundreds of thousands of musicians that that don't make any money, or they're just in it for the love of the game. The same yeah. thing with authors. You yeah, know, sure. yeah, you've got your Jeff Kinney's, you've got your, you know, J.K. Rowling's, you've got your Stephen King's or Tom Clancy's, and then, then you've got the hundreds of thousands of writers. Everybody else. So hey, I've got an interesting stat for you Bruce yes. um, I uh, I was told that in this country there are over 100 books a week released both uh, 
uh, you know, major publishers and smaller publishers. So, Does that include self-publishing, uh, you think? I don't even know if it includes self-publishing. It's stuff that has ISBN numbers. So there's 5,000 books a year that are released in this country. Over 5,000. Over 5, so wow. can you imagine what that's like if you're a new author to try to rise above that din? It's tough well, enough for the Actually, I can, yeah, yes. Well, and it's, yeah. uh, it, is, yeah. it is a loud din to crash yeah. over. Frank, what was the first book you published? I, it wasn't the Ramones book, was it? It was, one uh, it was the Ramones book. Okay, but mm -hmm. I had forgotten and when I, when I interviewed Lindsay. She reminded me that you and her had both done some of these books for uh, a Rhino imprint. Yeah, I, but that, that was, was after? after. Oh, okay. I did uh, On the Road with the Ramones in 2004. Then that kind of got me the next gig, which was I actually worked with Dave Mustaine on what was going to be come his first book but it he it, it 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 changed publishers a few times and he bounced around to a few different writers so i worked with him on it uh but i didn't end up getting like the cover credit i got like an editing credit or something like that uh i worked with niels lozauer on his van halen call you know neil coffee table book you've seen uh the van halen a visual guide i was the editor on did all the sort of rock star interviews on that then i did the uh, for Rhino, I did a Phil Spector book, but it's about the era when he did the Ramones. So that the Ramones gig kind of got me the Phil Spector gig. So do you talk to Spector? No, he was in jail by that point. Oh, okay, that's a to, tough like, interview. No, I talked to the Paley brothers, and I okay. also had done enough interviews with people for the Ramones book about that, and I had a ton of like unused interviews and quotes. So I was able to pull it together with like a few new interviews and a few unearthed stuff from my old interviews and and uh but it was also a digital book so it wasn't quite as much it wasn't long it, quite as long as a normal book so i thought those books came out though in like these little uh i don't I think feel like have, i saw some of them at wacko you might have i haven't seen a print copy of it but who the fuck knows yeah. it certainly wouldn't be the first time i've done some work and then seen it didn't distributed in different medias and not told about it or paid on it but who knows uh and then after that uh, I did, then I, the only book I wrote, I've had like the, the opposite book experience and sort of I think a unique book experience in that I've never put pitched a book in my life. Mm. Um, I'm the guy that gets the gig when someone else gets a book deal and are told, well you've got an interesting story but we need to team you up with a writer and what happens is that they take whoever it is, the tour manager of the Ramones, or Dave Mustaine, or, or Chris <coughs> Bagula, who I wrote uh, the, the, the kids' books with, I'll tell you about in a second. Um, they, they, they introduce them to all these like sort of nerdy you know, writers, and they don't get along with them, and they're like, I don't know if I really want to spend like six months in the shit with this guy. And then somehow, fourth down the line, they meet me, and I go in and have a beer with them, and we talk about fucking Van Halen and you know whatever we have a good time and they're like okay now this guy I can hang with and I also know what I'm doing you know with the pen so we sit there and we we write a book and I think my greatest asset has just been that like I work well with people so I get teamed up with all sorts of people I always find the groove that works with them or whatever the story is the first book was the Ramones book which the whole deal was that the Ramones had this unique um 
thing where they had the same tour manager for the entire 24 years they were together and one guy saw every single show minus two that he was sick for but like thousands of Ramon shows no other band had one tour manager for the entire quarter decade they were around certainly no one of the stature of the Ramones and so he got through our mutual friend Lon Friend who we all know back when Sanctuary was still around the label Sanctuary was doing well at the time they had a publishing company Lon was working as an A&R guy. I had worked with Lon at KNAC.com with Bob Ezrin and Lon and the Hine brothers and all that stuff. Lon left KNAC, went over to Sanctuary, had this deal on the table with Monty. They're like, we got to find the right writer for him. We keep introducing him to these people, and he's like, keeps rejecting them. And he's like, well, my friend Frank not only is a writer, but he's a touring rock musician. I think he's in Europe right now. So he hooked me up with Monty, and I was in Germany, like in Berlin, on tour and get this note from Lon saying, here's Monty Melnick's email, you should get in touch with them. And I shot him, and this is back when there was no instant messenger self, I'm on an email. But he shoots me an email right back and he's like, hey man, yeah, Lon says you're cool, blah, blah, where are you? And I'm like, I'm in Berlin right now. He's like, Berlin? What are you doing in Berlin? I'm like, I'm on tour with my punk rock band. He's like, I like that. <laughs> so then when I got back and we talked on the phone a few times, like we kind of hit it off and, and I got the gig and that's sort of been my story. Uh, as far as writing books goes, m I never really set out to be an author. I was a musician who stumbled into writing and production and all the other stuff I do, mainly because I wasn't able to make my rock career be my full-time job long-term enough, you know what I mean? I had about a decade of touring and doing all that stuff and doing pretty good, but at some point I had to branch out and uh, writing and production just seemed to sort of be the things, I guess, you know? And when you say production, you mean more like TV production, because this... Well, I mean, the way I make my bread and butter is I, as a director, producer in TV or digital. So I spent the last 12 years at NBC as an in-house director, producer. I bounced between the G4 network, E! Entertainment, and Esquire network. And then... Uh, Esquire Network folded, and around that time, people started kind of peeling off because the writing was on the wall. And I ended up um, going to Fender, uh, where I'm a director producer for their digital tutorial content. So, what essentially means uh, they're going to delve more into the world of like learning how to play guitar on an app and a subscription website where you're getting little videos that are taking you through a whole curriculum so you're learning like little things like how to strum and what a you know a, a hammer on is and stuff but you're also starting to learn easy songs and more difficult songs and chords that apply to those songs and it's a whole curriculum and so I'm directing and producing that content some of which has uh, been launched, but much of which is getting all launched in June when Fender goes live with all this. Which is why I'm shocked to hear when someone says, oh, I'm going to my guitar lesson now. Like, mm -hmm. you actually go to a teacher? I think that's becoming a dying thing. Well, YouTube is the way that, I mean, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and, you know, she's not into guitar, but she's into, like, sewing and stitching and soccer and cooking, and, like, she just watches, like, YouTube videos and gets these tutorials yeah. through that, whereas I was, like, you guys, I went to a teacher at Valley Arts Guitar in Ventura. Mm -hmm. My first teacher was Jennifer Batten. You remember Jennifer Batten? Oh, Bonas? yeah, yeah. Bat before Michael Jackson, before mm -hmm. all that stuff. She was I, a hot chef. I walked into Guitar Center, and she was their staff guitar teacher, and she taught me, the very first thing she taught me the first day was the Infatuation Solo by Jeff Beck off Rod Stewart record, and Am I Evil by Metallica. Uh -huh. So those, I wanted to learn Jeff Beck and Kirk Hammett, 
very indicative, as you know, Bruce, my musical wife for the last 20 years, of my probably style, I guess. But um, Jennifer Batten and a guy named Paul Hansen from the band Brooklyn Bratz, if you remember them. Kind of vaguely. And then, and then at that point, I teamed up. Then I met Dweezil, and Dweezil just kind of became my guy. You know, he was like my best friend slash guitar teacher for the next 15 years, you know. Um, but yeah, anyways, none of which you would, you would hear in my guitar playing at all. <laughs> you know, my guitar playing is actually probably closer to Johnny Thunders meets Joe Perry or something, but I came up in the generation of, I bought Keel records. I saw Armored Saint four or five times when I was a kid. My dad, I, you know, I, that was my, my groove is I was a metal kid who loved punk rock. Huh. So like I was buying Keel and Hellion and, you know, I mean, all of us, I was super into kicks. I was, you know, but when they were really early, like the first few records, I, Stars, I love stars. stars. Hanoi Rocks, you know, I was oh, like, I think Stars oh, are back. I got Did Star I hear stories. that? I hope they are. Angel, you know, I was in all that sort wow, of stuff. Stars. Obscure, sort of like, you know, glam, glitter, hard rock, blah, blah, blah. But I was a huge fan of Fear and Joan Jett and the Runaways. And, and so I think if anything is, you know, Bruce and I know each other through our music careers, and and I was in a band called the Streetwalking Cheetahs that I'm still in now. Bruce is in, and uh, is sort of I guess a I guess where all that shit meets. Somewhere where Keel and the Runaways <laughs> meet is my band. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I uh, actually recorded uh, the singer from Stars doing country. Michael E. Smith. Yeah, yes. brother so, of um, Rex Smith. Rex yeah. Smith, actor. Yeah. No one knows. Yeah, Rex actor Smith. slash musician yeah. Rex yeah. Smith. If either right. you guys get this trivia question, you, you'll. Oh, you'll you're in the right neighborhood right. now, brother. Bring it on. Okay, so several members of Stars were in a band together that had a major hit. Yes. Uh, can you name? It was before Stars, yes. right? Ye uh, yes. I have yes. that actually. Yes. Ma the three of them were in the same band together, Shit. and Michael E. Smith actually. Yes. Uh, major, major hit. Yes. Like, and everyone major, would know the way that I have it is that radio. Stars put out a rarities album and they put out that a few of the, I don't I probably can't remember it, but I know what you're talking about. Well, what, the, come the on, song is Brandy, you're a fine girl. Oh, the looking glass. The looking, the looking glass. Right. Yes. yes. Yep. And the singer in the Looking Glass, Elliot Lurie, uh, has you know went on to be a. Um, that seems uh, like that's years apart from so stars. No, but that yeah, wasn't. It wasn't Richie Rano or Michael uh, Smith. No, it was Brendan I mean, Hart. No. It was. It was. It was the other guys. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but, and, but Michael was in looking the last line of a Looking Glass. Adam, this is all Boston yeah. stuff, right? No, that's no, right. no, no this they weren't Boston. No, were they? they were. I think they were Washington D.C. or. Stars is from yeah, Washington. Well, I think the Eastern Seaboard yeah, somewhere, kind of. Yeah, I would. I know Richie Randall's from Jersey, but anyways. all I know is they started the trend that all the Hollywood bands took on of ending your name with a Z instead of an S, <laughs> and that was big in the eighties. If you had a Z in your name, you were in. You know, you had to misspell shit in the eighties. Yeah, well, yeah, that that goes back to the sixties even. I remember. Uh, I feel like it was all the way into the time I was working at the Knitting Factory. So in the two thousands. Probably getting close to the last gasp of everyone picking up the LA Weekly, and I'm going through it, and I forget what club it was. There's a band called Foxy Rocks. Foxy Rocks. had was it Foxy five Rock? X's in their name between the two. And I go, I have to go. That's commitment with yeah. that many X's. That's unbelievable. That's incredible. Uh, and I didn't, I, I didn't make it. I was stuck in a session. So, I, and they came and went pretty quick. They did not. Foxy Rocks didn't have a long life. Really? Unfortunately, they didn't. Okay. Hard to say. Hard to believe. One other question I want to get to uh, that I actually don't really know the answer to about your book, 
the Ramones book, is that if I'm not wrong, that's flipped publishers two or three times, right? How does that yeah, work? Yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know how it works. Uh, what I know is that Sanctuary went out of business as a label and also as a publisher, and the label stuff all got moved over to whatever company bought all the rights to that stuff, and then the publishing stuff went to a company called Bobcat that is a imprint of... Man, I should know this, but like a big company, like Simon & Schuster. It's like their European rock division, but... Uh, and then it hit digital and went through a different company, and it's gone through like... I mean, I've got copies of it in eight different languages, and it's gone through four or five pressings where we've updated it because mm. like when we first wrote it Johnny was still alive and then Johnny died and they wanted us to for the next pressing to write sort of an acknowledgement of that and and I, I don't know we've done a bunch of pressings but at this point it is currently not in print mm. it, it but they didn't they didn't after it went out of print the last time around except for the other languages in English it's currently not in print though you can easily get it I mean you can get it on Amazon or whatever so it's but still around but it's, it's still not around but they have not done an updated uh, print on it to my knowledge um, so at this point my I mean I really at this point my writing stuff is the last book I did was from dude to dad which was this complete left turn I wrote a book with Chris Pagula who uh, had a company called has a company called Diaper Dude and they, he was sort of the first guy to make like baby Bjorns and carryalls and diaper bags for men because everything at that point is all like pink and flowery and shit and all of us dudes that have kids are like oh, I gotta, uh. <laughs> and so he was the first guy who wisely went well I should make denim ones and ones that are more like you know leather and just shit guys would use and so he did really well, and suddenly he had, like, whole sections in department stores, and he got a marketing person and a publicist, as you do in these things, and started going on Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and being, like, the hip, cool, young dad giving advice. And at some point, his people were like, well, if you want to be considered kind of, like, an official, an expert, you got to write a book. So same way I get every other book is he goes through a litany of writers that he doesn't like and then someone leads him to me and I remember with the funny thing with Chris is we walked in I went into this restaurant to meet him and uh, we were both wearing black Converse blue jeans a black rock t-shirt and a black leather jacket and we kind of looked at each mm -hmm. other and went alright I think we're going to do that I think we're going to be okay That's so he's a pretty cool guy super like cool guy just real chill my age uh, we have very opposite stories you know I've I raised my daughter as a single dad. We got divorced when she was like two, and I raised her, you know, I mean, my her mom was in the picture as well, but I was a single dad doing that thing. He's got three kids and a wife, and he's been married since college. Um, but when you're going to write a book about what men need to know when women are pregnant, you might want both those voices. And then that book came out on Penguin, did really well and now we've written and it comes out in May the sequel which is from dude to dad uh, or I'm sorry the first one was from dude to dad the new one's diaper dude and that's essentially what men need to know those first two years that you're raising kids but again coming from a less um, so, you know a lot of these books that you read are like homework it's like all just like scientific information and biology and all this shit we're like I don't know I so don't want to read this stuff or 
we found some of these books that would deal with this stuff would go the opposite approach and be almost like reading like a Playboy or Penthouse article. It's like, yeah, and then when, then when she's milking, your tits get real big, huh? Hey! <laughs> and you're thinking like, no wife is going to buy their dude this fucking bullshit. So we kind of wanted our overall tone to be more like you were reading like a smart, funny article out of like Vanity Fair, Esquire, Rolling Stone, you know, something where it's like more anecdotal. And then the sidebars give you the the hardcore information you you need but the actual read is more like world according to garp or something like these sort of kind of relax you into relaxing. it as opposed to shock treatment you into exactly. the nightmare or or as opposed to just to feeling with. like this very clinical like i have to read this information with these facts so that my baby doesn't die and i accidentally don't roll over and suffocate them and so the first one did well we wrote the second one it's out in uh in may that's great it's coming right up Right on, man. And now, when the book comes out, are you involved with any kind of the promotion on it, or is that yeah, sort of who uh, takes that over? Both. I mean, it, it, Chris handles most of it. If it's local stuff, if there's like book signings and you know anything that I can get to, I'm always I'm a part of it. But um, uh, he already does a lot of traveling for like retail related stuff for his company. So he'll arrange promotional stuff according to his travel schedule and you know, meaning they're not gonna fly me out to Chicago to go mm -hmm. sign autographs for fucking, you know, a half an hour or something like when he's already there. So if it's local stuff, if it's interviews, stuff like that, yeah, I'm always a part. But if it's like, you know, something in New York that I, I'm not gonna pay my own way to go do a signing and they're not necessarily flying me out, the, but that's fine. I mean, the reality is, with those books, and probably with most of the books I've written, like, you know, like I said, I never set out to be an author, so I'm generally the guy you team up with. So it's Chris's story, and I'm helping him tell it and throwing in my own, sure. you know, voice and anecdotes when it applies, but a lot of it is I'm just helping uh, bring a, a voice to it and give it a point of view and structure it and, you know, all the stuff that takes to write a book, you know. So, uh... Speaking of promotion and all that kind of stuff, uh, before you got here, he was telling me about uh, making the rounds here in SoCal uh, to all the uh, morning and news-type news shows that you can go on and, and push this kind of stuff to do with your new book, which is 180 degrees away <laughs> from uh, Rockstar 101. Oh, it's sort of closer to what I, we were Yeah, well, that's about, another you know. thing that I think is kind of interesting why you, you two guys sort of come together here. Uh, give us a little bit of lowdown on this and what you've been doing in the last week with uh, it. Well, um, so getting back to the Keel book, you know, when I was in Keel as a young guy moving out here, I went from zero to 60 pretty quickly, right? Mm -hmm. And so I got married, and my little one came uh, a year and you later. Have one kid, or you I two? have one kid. one kid. I went from sixty to zero. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, and what? How old is your daughter? Well, well she's four, fourteen, 14 now. Fourteen now. So yeah, mine's, yeah, mine's yeah, thirteen. But uh, when my daughter was about three or four, it became uh, pretty evident that she was a uh, dilly dallier, and uh, she definitely was uh, marching to the beat of her own drummer. And she was marching slower than we would have liked. And uh, no matter what we did on most occasions to try to get her out the door on time, you know, we'd put the clock ahead five minutes or say we had to leave at 7, when we had to really leave at 7.30, whatever it was, all these little nudges, we constantly were running late for things. And uh, we wound up missing some things like the starts of movies or birthday parties. We would get there, they were, they were uh, you know, they were rolling down. and. Uh, so we, my, my daughter just uh, started exhibiting a proclivity for procrastination. That's mm. how I like to frame it. 
And one day I just blurted out to her, I said, don't dilly-dally, silly Sally. <laughs> and the phrase just kind of stuck with me. I thought it was a cute little phrase. And then I did a little Googling and found there was not a book with that specific title that was sh showing up. And mm. uh, I, I very quickly, I wrote this story uh, about, you know, it's kind of autobiographical as far as what happens in our family, about a girl that runs late for things and one day she misses an event that was important to her um, because of her lateness and it made her look inward to uh, uh, you know maybe do a little bit better uh, in terms of getting herself ready for things and so in the, in the same as the case of the first book I, I wrote what was the manuscript at the time but I was working full-time uh, when this happened I was working for Universal Music Group at the time and I actually did not do anything with that manuscript uh, for several years uh, after I uh, um, finished my employment term with Universal, I had a little more free time on my hands. I circled back to this. You know, I'd, I'd certainly read my fair share of children's books to my daughter throughout uh, the years and, you know, thought that the story was just as good as uh, other stories that were read to her. So I, I kind of polished up the manuscript. I did a lot of research as to who were the, you know, the children's book publishers out sure. there. Sent this manuscript blindly out to probably 50 people again. I had a, maybe a little little more juice uh, coming from the, the uh, uh, you know, having have been a, you know, a major label recording artist and yeah, having another book. Yeah, you've already written a book. Yeah, so uh, I, I got rejection after rejection after rejection, uh, but I got one yes. It was the same kind of story. So mm. I found a publisher that this resonated with and uh, got, you know, got a small deal for it. Got the book out. It's about a year process, by the way. Once uh, put Yeah, the, take the whole thing. Yeah, the, illustrations, the illustrations took a long time. Uh, you know, to find the right illustrator and to, to go through the sketching process and uh, how the, the illustrations uh, come, come to life. Uh, you know, that was a long process. Mm. Uh, so this book is called Don't Dilly Dally Silly Sally. It was just released first week of January. And lo and behold, I find out that March 4th of this year starts National Procrastination Week. No way. Way. I know you guys are, I know, I, I, I didn't believe it either. How did that, you find that out? I and how could someone who take the time <sighs> to to write a, to do a National Procrastination Day when inherently it would uh, be procrastinating yeah, to yeah, even yeah. do such a thing? It's day. actually it's, next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were trying to do it for years. We just couldn't get it together. And <laughs> actually, uh, this is true. You, you can Google it. They've been celebrating National Procrastination Week. Uh, since 2008, and it's a whole week of procrastination. But they put off the promotion yeah. until 2013. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, it was brought to my attention by one of my uh, my uh, writer friends that, uh, hey, you know, it's National Procrastination Week. Your book would be a perfect, uh, you know, uh, segue to talk about uh, dilly-dallying. And so uh, I went ahead proactively on my own, um, uh, writing proposals to all the news, uh, uh, the news stations. I got, I got all individual Facebook, you know, uh, messages to uh, individual anchor people and reporters. All probably thirty or forty uh, uh, stations here right, in Southern you know, California. That's, a, that's an amazing story in and, and of itself because most people that are <laughs> of the artistic 
bent, whether it's a musician or an author, I've created my masterwork, now someone's going to promote it for yeah. me. No. Yeah. you got to take the reins and dive in. And like even your research uh, to find out the 50 potential publishers to yeah. send it to, that in yeah. and of itself, well, that's I, time consuming. I went to, you know, I went to Barnes and Nobles and, you know, uh, to, you know, took pictures of the publishers that were on the back of the books and then there were a couple directories that I got turned on to that had other publishers but yeah it's, it's you know you have to be proactive you got to be you know unfortunately not only you have to be on the creative side but you have to be on the marketing but side the, too. There's, there's two types of artists I think I mean it could be more break it down to more than that but like we all know we're talking about bands or actors or writers there's the ones who sit in their room and might be making amazing stuff and might even have a band or write a book or do all these things, but don't really take the initiative to promote it beyond sort of what's easy and at their fingertips. And then there's the people that look up 50 publishers and go send their shit out. And like that, you know, it's always been that way. And we've all been in bands and artistic endeavors and partnerships with super creative people that you gotta talk into actually doing the work that it takes mm. to do things. And then the ones who do the work. Sort of self-starters. Yeah, they're self-starters. And I mean, I think the creative brain, I mean, a lot of people, you know, you hear like, you know, you might talk to girls who date musicians and they'll be, oh, they're all flaky. No, they're not all flaky. Half of them are flaky. <laughs> the other half are not flaky at all. Now, they might be insane. They might be sexual deviants. They might be lawbreakers. They might be disasters to be in a relationship with, but they ain't flaky. They're getting their shit done. <laughs> and then half are, you know, Johnny Thunders, you know, just <laughs> partying and reckless, you know. But, but like, I think the three of us, for instance, I mean, I would definitely say we're all artistic types, but, like, I can't, you know, you're, a, for as long as I've known Bruce, 20-something years now, hardworking guy. I've always been a just keep piling the work on my back and let's walk up the mountain, hardworking guy. I get mm -hmm. the sense that you are, too. Uh, I think we're that type. But we all know and have been in partnerships, as you said, yeah. with people who are fantastically talented, but I don't know that I would call them self-starters or hardworking. You know what I mean? There's some people you got to twist. Well, their I arm think that to, to you know, just like done, you're talking you about, know? don't dilly dally. I think there's some. It's not always procrastination either. I think some people's brains just don't necessarily work in that way. Or yeah, or they're to, like just not organized. organized. Yeah, yeah. The, the and some people are are like, <clears throat> even though they're creative, uh, when it comes to like taking that creativity or, or the product of it. And displaying it to you know the business world or just other people that might be creative, they they you know shut down at that. But point. I can be that way too. I mean, you know, Bruce, like I'll I'll sit there and you know get on some like creative bent and crank out like twenty songs in my garage band when I've got a week off and just be like plowing through material and just be all, and then like. I don't do anything, you know, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've done lots of things with my music, but I can also very, I can also get into that zone of just being into creating and, and kind of not giving a shit about, like, marketing it or trying to do, I'm just like, whatever, like, I'm, I can get in the zone of just being creative without thinking about, like, now how do I monetize this? Mm. Um, but when it comes well, I think there's to something, something like too that books, I think you, everything created is not necessarily meant for monetization or or for the marketplace. Sometimes you just make something because you want to make something. Yeah, and sometimes you make it because this is what we do. Yeah. We're musicians. We write songs. We play music. Like I, I always sort of feel like you create first, and then you figure out what of it. You know, you you make twenty things, books, music, songs, albums, whatever your your your, your groove is. 
and then you kind of figure out like, well, okay, these are the good ones. I'll go try to sell these. I think there's actually like some money or market in it. But like this stuff was just for fun, and I just think it's entertaining. You know what I mean? I don't know how you guys operate, but I kind of create. I think that's first pretty normal. And then figure out where the money is. Um, and then maybe every once in a while you just get something like a deal that falls in your lap. Like for me, it's like I'll just get a book deal. I'm like, oh, fuck it, okay, let's go write a book for six months. But in between, I'm still writing songs and shit just because that's what I do. Sure. I, you can't take. I could do twenty other things. And I'll still write music. The good, the good ones are the most punk ones. Go to our band, the Streetwalking Cheetahs. If I write a metal one, I might take it to Thor or some other project and work with. But a lot of them, I'm just writing because that's what I fucking do. I write songs. You know, I, you can't take. You could chop off both arms, and I'd write them with my feet. Yeah, and I think as far as books go, it's interesting that you said you wrote both of your books all the way. Yeah. Before you did, and yeah. I did as well. Yeah. And I think that sort of came. Uh, to me, from way back in the days when I was in the Jesters, we finished our album and then shopped it, which was a rare thing because we were in a recording studio situation where we could pull that off. Most bands in those days weren't. We were super lucky in that regard. Uh, but I think that kind of put me in the mindset of, I'm going to make it the way I want to make it, and then I'll get someone to put it out. Yeah. And if it doesn't go, and if no one, and I also came to the thing of doing my own record once a long time ago, is if I can't talk someone into putting it out, it ain't coming out because I'm not going to suddenly be a record company because I suck at that. Right. You know, I'm not going to do a good job. Yeah, I think I think there's there's parallels in other forms of art too, like 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 painters. You know, sometimes painters are commissioned to do something, but then you got guys like Van Gogh that just painted. Right. You know, that was that was his uh, way of expressing himself, and you know, he he, he had, I don't think he sold the story goes he didn't sell a single painting, or he sold one painting in his lifetime. Yeah. But he painted All because that on. was an. But it's funny because we opened this piece and you gave a Frank Zappa quote, and mm. Frank Zappa is probably my biggest influence on on my music my even I mean you wouldn't tell from my little three-chord rock songs but uh, my philosophy my overall life I, I happened to grow up in the Zappa house and and knew all them and knew Frank really well and I have a ton of Frank stories it's a whole other podcast I can tell you a hundred incredible Frank stories um, but Frank to me Frank Zappa is the ultimate example of sort of an art first mentality and a guy who just constantly was pushing himself and his artistic endeavors and made more music they, they, than he could even figure out how to monetize. Mm. Like, they still are putting out <laughs> albums. But interesting thing about Zappa, and he was way ahead of the curve on this, is he was... Uh, and I think some of this had to do with, like, in his early days, he worked at a greeting card company or something like that. He got into graphics, and they also said his compositions, when you laid them out, and you looked at them, you went, wait a minute, that's a graphic design. So, like, the notes are all over the place. You see guys struggling how to play it, but when it's all put together, it makes a picture. Hmm. That's sometimes how his melodies were figured out. But the point being that, coming from some of those background things, he was pretty sharp in terms of marketing and all that early, like, we're too weird for you and what are you doing, Susie Crunchies, right. all that sort of negative marketing, he came up with all that. That wasn't the record company. They didn't know what to do with him. They were all older well, cigar chomper guys. All of which is especially uh, amazing when you think about the fact that the mothers were promoted so much as being avant-garde and part of the drug society, despite the fact that he was totally sober. And if anything, he had a band full of fuck-ups that he had to kind of crack the whip with to keep them 
you know, under control until he fired them all and got banned. There was less of a fuck up, you know, and then constantly rotated. But like his whole thing was like he realized that like the freaks and the hippie movement, like those were his crowd, even though he personally wasn't it you know he was a freak a weirdo totally but he wasn't a druggie wasn't an alcoholic he really didn't relate to a lot of i don't get the impression from all the books i've read and stuff that frank was like hanging out at rock clubs you know you know other than maybe to get laid or hear good music you know what i mean um so unlike say hendrix sly stone all these cats that were like part of the scene and smoking and drinking and tripping and be you know frank like kind of was like out of that scene but was like but that's my audience mm. and so purposely like you said marketed himself as this super like like you know avant-garde the weirdest of the weird which he was but wasn't in a way i mean i think he was a lot straighter certainly politically than than his audience was you know yeah, for sure. Frank's a fascinating guy. That's a, that's a story in itself. No we doubt. are sort of getting near uh, the end. Is there anything else about any of this stuff that you guys want to cover in terms of your books? Uh, maybe we should plug anything that's happening musically with anybody? Well, I've been semi-dormant uh, musically the last few years. Are, uh, is Keel not playing well, on these, uh, like, you know, over. these 80s uh, <laughs> reunion shows no. and stuff? Oh, I, t- oh, I was making a joke there. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. gotcha. Uh, actually, in 2009, it was our 25-year anniversary. Yeah, we, you guys did some well, shows, Well, we all right? came out of the uh, Witness Protection Program. There was a Keel program. record <laughs> yeah. years back, right? Yeah, he's right. Yeah, there, we, we did. We did a, um, a 2009 was our 25-year anniversary. What was it called? The Streets of, of Rock and Roll? Man, I, I I I am really Here's impressed. Your boy, uh, I know Mark, this guy's a music lover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I got I'm that a, record, man. Come on. I am really impressed. Uh, so, I, have, I even got the fucking Ronnie Lee Keel, uh, you know, yeah, I, yeah the uh, Iron Horse. Yeah, he's, he's had a couple of projects. I've got both. Fair Game. Come oh on, my man. God. No, let's not get Jeez, crazy. That, this I, is might, a, I might even have Cold Sweat if oh you want to get all my, crazy now you're, on my I even saw Cold Sweat at the Whiskey at a No Bozos Jam hosted by our our mutual friend Rich Bartel, if I I remember correctly. Probably or or possibly by Sam Mann of Sam Mann and the Apes. You're digging deep. (laughs) You are digging deep. I think he's my Facebook friend. But uh, Keel, Keel, since 2009, uh, we were good for six to eight shows a year, a uh, couple of cruises, a couple mm-hmm. of uh, support things. We actually, it seems like there's a kind of a market for that well, stuff now, all the cruises. And yeah, the, cru- the cruises have become quite popular. Uh, the, 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 the Monsters the, of Rock cruise right. is, is gangbusters. I mean, they're selling out, you know. And Eddie Trunk's doing all of his, like, hosts, Air Nation yeah, stuff. They, and there's, like, that's you know, right, there's a legit the, market for that stuff. Yeah, those cru- cru- we, we've done three of them. Um, and I've been a guest on uh, a couple of others, and yeah, they do some pretty big numbers. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll have 20, 30, 40 bands, sure. you know, on, on these cruises. And uh, Dude, uh, look, man, I came up in there. I, I look at the lineup, I'm like, wait a second, I could be on a giant ship and see Kicks, Black and Blue, Keel, Armored Saint. Like, uh, I, I mean, fuck. If I, Quiet Riot. The war. problem is the idea of being trapped on a cruise with all of those people sounds like my worst nightmare. Uh, well, to that <laughs> but the point, idea of seeing all those bands. We're, is, uh, <laughs> family friends to a point with uh, our friend uh, Brian yeah, Forsythe uh, from girl, Kicks. Yeah, yeah. So he told me the he goes, Brian, he, Brian is a wonderful guy, but very, very shy. Not if he he'll talk to the fans, he'll hang out, but if he can like just kind of get on stage, play his guitar, and go away, that's that's what he likes. So he goes on these 
cruises, and he told me... He must be like a rat no, in a cage. No, what he does... <laughs> this is great. He literally figures out all the things that, you know, the... Uh, the maitre d's and the in the staff and like all their they have different like ways to get around the ship so they don't have to go in front of everybody like when you're going to go change the beds or whatever the hell you're going to do there's another little pathway that's the first thing he does when he gets on the ship is he learns that and that's what he does he doesn't even go out into the public he goes back and forth to where he's got to play in his room and everything on these like I don't know how he talks to the crew into showing him that, uh, but they do. Because he's a charming guy. Yeah, he's yeah, he pulls double duty because he's yeah. in Rhino Bucket, and too. He's in Rhino Bucket, yeah. too. Yeah. And That's that right. guy, by the way, yeah. blazing guitar player. Great guitar he, player. He is the Telecaster master. No doubt about it. He's, he's blazing. I, uh, I hear our uh, ubiquitous uh, police helicopter circle. Yeah. Uh, circle uh, I think there's something coming up on Hollywood Bowl. Oh, and okay. they, they, I mean, when... When the uh, Academy Awards are happening, it's it's you know it's apocalypse now around here. There's okay. no doubt about it. Well, I'll simply uh, throw if we're gonna plug. Uh, I mean, the next book coming out is Diaper Dude uh, through Penguin, which I wrote with Chris Pagula. Um, but more on the rock and roll tip. Are we closing the door? We're not, not gonna, gonna close. We're not gonna be NWA side. No, no, no. no. We're gonna. It's oh, got to be on, too much. <laughs> Uh, and and Bruce, as you well know, you and I have our little outfit, the Street Walking Cheetahs, who are constantly playing. Yes. Uh, and I think uh, we're recording some new stuff, so I'm out there. Well, tell people that when, when's the date of the thing we're doing at the Rainbow, because that'll be a hoot. Uh, April 23rd. Yeah, we're come on to that. At the Rainbow. It's with, free. With Quiet Riot, oh. Black and Blue, Jet Boy, us, and. The and anniver it, it, anniversary. I couldn't be more excited. We about are definitely that. the black eye of the bill. Yes, no <laughs> doubt. But you're talking to a guy who's seen Black and Blue in concert like seven times. You're a big so fan, no I'm doubt. I'm a big fan, so I'm very excited. An uh, another Gene Simmons reference. Another Gene Simmons true. reference. Uh, and then the night before, we're playing Alex's Bar with uh, in Long Beach with Jet Boy. Um, but a yeah, more up close and personal. Yes, show with but those the boys. cheetahs we 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 sort of bob and weave between garage rock shows, punk rock shows, hair metal shows. We we seem to be just rock and roll enough that you can kind of throw us on any bill, and we go up and just you and know, we'll, and we'll show up. We'll show up. We dismantle we the show fucking up place. And throw up. Yeah, we show up, we throw up literally Saturday <laughs> night. Yeah, let's not go that there. actually is true. And uh, and we give you a big rock show and I think as long as you like rock and roll you generally kinda dig what we're up to. Oh, and then the other thing, if I can plug one little thing, is that for the last five years, uh, I have been directing a documentary film that is finally going to be coming out later this year called Risen, the story of Shron Hellraiser Smith. Hellraiser was a rapper from a Wu-Tang Clan affiliate group called Sons of Man who suffered a brain aneurysm and lost the whole left side of his body and the ability to rap. And I've been filming his rehabilitation for the last five years as he's learned to uh, walk again, talk again, rap again, function again. And we are uh, releasing the trailer and launching the website um, next week. And some of the music we've made with them is finally going to yep, see a lot of day. Some of the music we Very made with them stuff. and some of the beats that we've done are, are at least certainly in the rough cut. Uh, but if you go to risendocumentary.com, uh, you can check that out. The trailer will be up there. And I'm damn near done editing it. And uh, it stars RZA from Wu Tang. It stars, you know, a whole bunch of rappers. I don't know. I don't know that this is the audience that's going to know any of these folks. But, Who knows? But uh, uh, it's an interesting. I think any artists or any people that have gone through any sort of hardships or affliction or handicaps 
uh, will certainly relate to his story. So. Cool. Anything else we need to know from you, Mr. Ferrari? No, uh, just uh, markferrari.com. I guess we'll kind of uh, sum everything up. Every, All right. Everything, uh, everything you need to know and some stuff you don't will be on there. <laughs> so. All right, well, we ran a little long. Uh, I'm going to cut it here, so uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Tone Duff Sessions, a feature of Rare Bird Radio. Coming up soon, we have Anna Biller, director of The Love Witch, and Steve Flush, author of New York Rock and American... What is that word? Hardcore.